Hello and welcome to Dialogue, the Diapoint podcast. I'm your host, Pam Durant. Hi everyone and welcome back. I have a real treat for you today. I am speaking with Ginger Vieira, who has lived with type 1 diabetes and celiac disease since 1999. And also she's been living with fibromyalgia since 2014. She's the author of several books, including Pregnancy with Type 1 Diabetes, Dealing with Diabetes Burnout, Emotional Eating with Diabetes, two children's books. One is called When I Go Low and the other is Ain't Gonna Hide My T1D. After 15 years of creating content for many websites, including Diabetes Mind, Beyond Type 1, Healthline, Diabetes Strong, and more, Ginger has joined the T1D Exchange as the Associate Director of Communications. Her background includes a Bachelor of Science degree in professional writing and certifications in coaching, personal training, and Ashtanga Yoga. And thank you so much for joining us today, Ginger. Welcome to the show. So Ginger, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. And after a lot of coordination, I'm so happy that we did it. Thanks for having me, Pam. I'm glad we could figure out our time zone differences. They're dramatic. Yeah, it can be. It can be. But I don't know, at the same time, it's different, but it's the same. I just feel like since honestly having diabetes in my son's life, there is no time zone because in the way, what we found just kind of jumping into it, support groups or whatever, or I always tell like moms of children, newly diagnosed, ask anytime. There will always be somebody awake somewhere in the world. (laughs) Always. That is unfortunately painfully true. There's always someone awake trying to figure out a high or a low. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. So why don't we start from the beginning, if you can tell everyone a a little bit about yourself. I know we met very briefly in Abu Dhabi at the ISPAD meeting, and I think it was kind of on almost the last day. So I have a lot of questions for you as well. But um, how did you come to being an author, a writer, and and doing all these things. And I know a little bit about your personal experience, but I think it's always sure. good to, to hear from you. Um, I mean, in the teeniest nutshell, my diagnosis was uh, at age 13. My whole family got the flu, and my flu just seemed to keep getting worse. And uh, about three weeks into feeling not well, I said, I think I have type 1 diabetes because one of the classmates, one of my classmates was doing his health fair project for the seventh grade health fair on type 1. And I saw the list of symptoms and I was like, I have nearly all of those. Um, And nobody believed me for like a week. And then I burst into tears and my mom took me to the hospital. And sure enough, pretty obvious diagnosis after that. But what I, I spent, you know, a few days in the hospital getting intravenous insulin and fluids and everything. And what I really, what I left that hospital, um, having realized during a couple of days of, you know, feeling sorry for myself that everybody in life has challenges. And I could literally at age 13, think of all of my friends and pinpoint a really big challenge that each of them had already endured or continued to endure, um, in their life, you know, hemophilia, leukemia, losing a mother to a brain tumor, a mentally ill father, 
I mean, I, I could just, I could come up with this huge list of like, oh, their lives aren't easy. And looks like this is going to be one of my challenges. And I left the hospital with that perspective. And I think that has served me very well ever since in that. I, I believe very strongly that if you get stuck in feeling sorry for yourself because you have type one, you get really stuck because type one is so much about looking for constant solutions and studying a situation. Why did this meal make my blood sugar high? You could, you know, you could look at it from the perspective of, ugh. Once again, my blood sugar is high after a meal and this sucks and life sucks and I'm mad, right? Or you could say, okay, that's weird. I gave myself insulin for the meal. I thought I gave enough. Clearly wasn't enough. I'm going to make a note and try again next time and move on. And I believe that that mentality is like really critical to not just reaching your A1C goals, but just thriving emotionally and, and enjoying life as a person with T1D. Um, so anyway, I, uh, by the time I hit college, I was graduating with a degree in writing, but I also had fallen accidentally into the health and fitness world. I, I hired a personal trainer at a gym to try to learn more about weightlifting. And I ended up competing in powerlifting and setting records and becoming a personal trainer and a yoga instructor. And so for several years after college, I was doing a lot of writing and a lot of health and fitness with people. And um, I really kind of married the two for a while and became known um, in the newer type one diabetes community. This is, you know, I'm talking 15 years ago uh, as kind of the exercise, exercise gal who loves to talk about how to manage your blood sugar, weightlifting, jogging, or during a powerlifting meet. Um, so I set a lot of records in competitive powerlifting early on, and it gave me a little niche um, in talking about exercise. And I have not stopped talking about it since, but I'm talking about a lot of other things as well. And I've written uh, hundreds of articles on many different aspects of type one and books as well, of course, too. That's amazing. A lot of things are running through my head. So first of all, you're, you were a very wise 13 year old, I think, to come to that conclusion, because not everyone, even adults, I think, you know, they can struggle with this. We all can, like you said, everyone does have challenges type one or any diabetes diagnosis is quite the challenge. And, you know, it's not necessarily about being a Pollyanna, but I guess rising to the occasion. Right. I mean, and I yeah. mean, I hate to say it like, like that, maybe that's not the best way. And as someone without type one, I'm always really worried that it's going to come out wrong or, you know, but uh, I love your take on that. And you as a power lifter, until I read that in your book, in your bio, after seeing you, I would have never guessed it. I so mean, I for those of you that are not seeing Ginger in person, <laughs> she is a petite woman yes. and a power lifter. That that's awesome. I was, I was thirty pounds thicker. I was a meaty gal when I was powerlifting. I definitely even still though that that's that's awesome. Do you still lift? I don't do any heavy lifting during powerlifting. I was doing such intense training that I truly believe it triggered fibromyalgia. And my body is clearly prone to autoimmune diseases. I have a mm. handful. And um, 
So I had to really rebuild my tolerance for exercise over the course of a number of years. And now I can do lots of fun exercise. I jump rope every day. I do light weights every day. I'm doing karate now, but I have to be very careful about certain things, mostly lactic acid. Any exercise that produces a lot of lactic acid leaves me exhausted for days, dysfunctionally mm. exhausted. So heavy weightlifting, a lot of lactic acid, I avoid it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good that you listen to your body. It's taken a lot of self-study and research to figure out how to not have to just be a couch potato, basically, because I wow. love to get up and go. And so um, again, it's right. It's I could have just felt sorry for myself and been like, I feel like I feel terrible. I'm exhausted. Doesn't make any sense. Instead, I was like, all right, let's see what I can do and what doesn't trigger more pain and more exhaustion and go from there. And it's really helped me thrive as a person with fibromyalgia. Amazing. Amazing. So what was the first really major article or book that you wrote about diabetes that really started your career in this direction? My first book was called Your Diabetes Science Experiment. And I mean, it's literally what, we, what we've already been talking about in that um, you've got to look at it and ask, why did this happen? And what can I change next time if I want a different result? And I wrote it during my senior year of college while I was also figuring out powerlifting training. And, you know, I taught at one point I was teaching like five power yoga classes a week, you know. Um, so I was exercising a ton and I was personal training clients a lot as well. And so my first book really offers this perspective of how to boil down all the variables that can affect your blood sugar and how to really think about, is my background insulin accurate before I even try to figure out managing my blood sugar during a jog? I really believe so strongly in the tiniest tweaks in your background insulin dose or basal rates. And just a one, you know, I'm petite, my insulin needs are relatively low. So a one unit change for me is a big difference. For some people, it might be more like a three unit change could make a big difference. Um, but those little adjustments. And so then in this book, I have these little science experiment templates that yeah. help you write down the different variables you need to think about. And this was before CGMs existed, really. Like they were just starting to be a thing, but I certainly didn't have one. And um, it was before we all thought about insulin on board. So in a couple months, I'm actually publishing a book that really ought to replace this one I wrote in college. It's full of typos. It was self-published, you know, like it's a mess. Um, a lot of people have thanked me for it, but it's a mess. And um, so I'm publishing a book on exercise with type 1 diabetes. And it's really about how to understand the variables the exercise physiology in layman's terms. I love explaining things in the most basic language possible. Um, and then how to make adjustments to get the results you want so you can exercise and not crash or spike. And um, yeah, that's coming. I love that. I can't wait to read it. And I think a lot of people are going to like that. I was just speaking with a mom today and she says, yeah, you know, activity and exercise is challenging. It is for all of us. And I said, well, there's a white paper that's intended for physicians that I can send you, which is quite a heavy read mm -hmm. for, you know, I guess after some point, 
we get used to those terms and seeing that, but it's still not easy to take it all in in one go. You can't just sit down and read and all that, of this. And I once. would argue that a lot of physicians do not know how to, I mean, I can't tell you how many people have messaged me on social media saying, I was just diagnosed with type one diabetes and my doctor told me I can't kayak anymore. <gasps> I mean, oh. I hear messages like that all the time because they don't know what they're doing and they don't know what they're talking about and not the patient, but the doctors, you know, and they, mm-hmm. they just say, well, you need to eat carbs before you exercise and yada, yada, yada. And, or they, you know, I had a friend who wanted to try doing um, triathlons and her doctor just flat out said, no, that's not possible with type one. I'm like, come up with a nice list of people that prove you embarrassing. Oh. I got, I got a lot here too. Even ultra marathoners, I'm sure you know some as well. Like there's people out there with type one doing some of the most amazing physical things. If you're willing to put in the work to learn and study what your body needs in order to endure, you can do anything. That is true. I think we're going to use that as a soundbite, period. (laughs) End of show. No, (laughs) but, but really that. That is so true. And I I love that book because a lot of it, especially I I do have one book somewhere here that I bought when my son was, you know, getting a little bit older and adolescent and taking his sport a little more seriously. And it was about exercise and diabetes. But again, it's like really thick and it's a really heavy read. Even for me, someone that's like really curious about this and I want to know everything and I want to understand it. And then apply it to him. But sometimes at the end of the day, that's a lot to take in when you're managing it and someone else. So thank you in advance for making it in layman's terms. Thank you. Yeah, my favorite thing is to study it as much as I can myself and then put it out in a way that is as simple as possible for anyone else to absorb. And so I don't know, I haven't like looked at how how many pages this, this upcoming book will be when it's in book format versus a Google doc, but I wrote it to be as short as possible so that it's not some big, you know, project to even read. That's good. But even if it's a lot of pages, if it's interesting and easy to read, I think people will, you know, will get into it. Like, in, which is a great segue into dealing with diabetes burnout okay. because, well, this one, for some reason, I ended up with the really big print book when I ordered it, which I'm not sure why, maybe I selected that by accident, but it's in like 16 font or something, which sometimes if you don't need, it's harder to skim things, but my, the book was quite thick, but still an engaging read. And I read all of it because the way you present it and the way other people are sharing their stories about burnout and other things makes it so interesting. And I really thought first I picked up the book And just, you know, after I met you and I was like, wow, you know, you seems like Ginger has a really interesting job and what does she do? And I want to learn more about her. And then I saw you were writing books and I I said, well, what kind of books? Wasn't even thinking to, you know, talk to you on on the podcast. That doesn't always come to mind. It's not like, oh, I got to find a podcast guest. It's just, I'm curious about this person. And I felt like last year as a caretaker, I was seriously having burnout because on top of diabetes, got to move, you know, we got to do all these other things in life that uh, they all just seem to come at once. Right. And so I thought one, maybe I can benefit from this, but also 
my son's been doing this since 20 months old. How can I help him avoid burnout, which I'm not even sure that's possible because I'm sure at some point in time he will burn out. But what is like, you know, some wisdom that's out there that at least to be armed with when it happens. Right. Right. So I was really excited and curious to, to get the book before, you know, and then as I, as I was reading it, I was like, wow, this is so intriguing. And I want, I, then I said, I want to learn more. And I wonder if Ginger will come on the podcast because it's such a great book and it is written in such a way that it's not like a theoretical psychology book about burnout or anything like that. I don't want to read a book like that. (laughs) Dare I say entertaining. There's nothing entertaining or fun about burnout, but this was such a, when I read it, like I felt it here in my heart, it wasn't like up here in my head. So that it's, it's a, it's a lovely book and there's a lot of good advice in there for people with diabetes, type one, type two, and also a section for parents of teens, which I loved. And actually I haven't talked to my son about that yet. And I wanted to see, like, have him read that part of the book and say, you know, Mm -hmm. do I do this? Do we do that? How is it? So it it made me think about some of my responses to him and well, I think I'm doing okay, but there's always room for improvement. (laughs) But how did you decide then to write a book about burnout? Was it from your own experience and you thought this would be useful? That's the only book um, that I didn't self-publish. A publisher actually approached me and asked if I would write it because I had written articles about it. Um, I had been quoted by Dr. Polonsky talking about diabetes vacation, in quotes, mm-hmm. how to take a diabetes vacation. Um, so you meant you said something earlier that really um, highlights such an important thing of, you know, is it possible to avoid burnout? I really believe that part of dealing with burnout and lessening its impact on your life is to anticipate it mm-hmm. and expect it. And like when it happens, be like, well, yeah, of course I'm burnt out. I deal with this 24 seven, right? Because it, instead, I think what can happen for a lot of people is they feel shame that they're tired of it. And then they feel like they're failures because they're tired of it and they're exhausted and they don't want to do 100% and they don't want to, you know, I'm going to put perform in quotes, perform all the type one tasks that we have to do all day at the same level that they might have been able to do three years ago. Or, I mean, like, technically my A1C right now isn't really that different than my A1C when I was pregnant, for example. And I, you know, my whole life was my blood sugar because I knew I was growing a baby who depended on my blood sugars being as healthy as possible. But even though my A1C is similar, I know that my commitment and my focus and my diligence about my type one diabetes right now is so different than what it was when I was pregnant. And I've got a million other things that are sucking my attention away. And I just know I have to like forgive myself a little bit for not being able to stay as on top of it right now as maybe three months ago. Right. Like I'd say I'm not in burnout right now as much as I'm just like, oh, there's just like a lot going on and you know, all good things, but like life's just so busy right now. And so you can beat yourself up for that, or you could just be honest as you reflect on it. Like, all right, this is what's going on. I don't want to be here forever where I feel like I'm, you know, making 
I don't even know how to describe it. My blood sugars are still fine. I'm just, you're hard on yourselves, you know. We're all pretty hard on ourselves because we're constantly graded on, I mean, we're graded like hour by hour, whether we know it or not. Um, And so anticipating burnout and like giving yourself permission to feel it doesn't mean that you have to neglect your diabetes in a way that's severely dangerous for your health. Burnout doesn't have to mean you stopped checking your blood sugar and you stopped taking your insulin can just mean you're like, oh, I'm sick of this, but here I go. Here's my dose for dinner, you know, and on and just acknowledge it and not feel guilty about it. Mm, I like that. And the not, it's very hard, I think, probably not to feel guilty about that. Because yeah. like you say, we're graded, the voices in our head, curious people or people that care for you constantly asking about it. And it's always always there. Yeah. And like, I know right now I'm doing my best and my best might not look like it looked three months ago or three years ago. It might be better. It might be not as great. So, but I just know I'm doing the best I can right now with this 24 seven thing. And if you're expecting your best to be a hundred percent perfection all the time, you're going to run, you know, right into the ground. It's just not a fair That's something that I noticed very early on with my son, with the way doctors would talk to me. Mm. And he when he was young, because I'd always worked in healthcare, and you really have no idea, I always say became an expert after my son's diagnosis, because you, you know, you're told you're an expert, you have all these degrees, you have no idea. (laughs) And then observing how doctors would speak to me when my son was young and as my son got older to understand the conversation. And then I thought, this is a bit too rigid and I need to change doctors. This was before we had pediatric endocrinologists here. When my son was diagnosed, there were like no PD endos around. It was really, really like no man's land. Yeah. Maybe there there was one or two out there that we didn't know about, but we didn't have one here locally for quite a few years. Um, and then the way this one pedi- pediatrician was speaking about his A1C, which later after I started looking for the standard was in a pretty good range. And he was still kind of saying, oh, this is like horrible and stuff. And I thought, you know, my son's only five or whatever, however old he was at the time, but this is going to take a toll. And I don't think doctors and healthcare providers always intend for things to sound like that the way they come out, but, but they really do. Yeah. All the time. And it can, and it can really, and whether you're 18 or 80, yeah. you're always going to remember how that, that made you feel. Absolutely. Well said. Yes. Yeah. And it, it, it contributes to burnout and maybe how you even want to take care of your, your health and diabetes. Yes. A a topic I am very passionate about um, educating people on right now is the fact that type ones also dysfunctionally produce five other hormones because of type one diabetes. And those five other hormones affect blood sugar because it affects how much glucose your liver produces. It affects your appetite because it affects, um, I don't know how to say it. The it's ghrelin, G 
ghrelin? I think it's ghrelin. It looks like the word gremlin, but um, oh, it's a hormone, okay. that, a hormone that regulates appetite. And um, and then amylin, which is a hormone that helps slow down liver glucose production after you eat so that, you know, technically you'd need less insulin, but that our body is not producing much or any amylin. So we're producing too much liver glucose. We're also amylin signals to your brain when you're full after eating. And so many type ones will tell you that they just never quite feel full and they just feel mm. all the time. And I know to maintain and manage my weight, I have to ignore that part of my brain that's like, you want to eat more? And like, but why? What? You know, I have to look and be like, I've already eaten. I've had enough. I shouldn't still be hungry, you know? And um, that's a lot of energy that goes into managing something that, again, your body's supposed to be managing yourself. So weight gain is also really hard for type ones to keep your weight down. And a big part of that is because we're taking more insulin than our body would naturally be producing if it was managing properly producing all these other hormones, right? If we're overproducing liver glucose, then we're taking more insulin than we would naturally be needing if we weren't diabetic. We weren't people with diabetes. Wow. And that's super important. And I'm sure there's probably a lot of doctors out there that aren't even aware of that. Oh, I, yes, for sure. And if you go to um, tundexchange.org, I uh, just had a gal wrote about this for us. I wrote an article about amylin and she wrote it and said, did you know there's even more hormones you don't produce properly? And so she wrote this article for us on all, all six, including type one. Um, so exchange.org search the word hormones, you'll find it. Okay. Uh, We'll look for that. And if there there's any links actually to that article, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes as well, because that would be amazing. I'm sure. And it's it's part of why more and more people are taking things like metformin and GLP one medications like Trulicity and Ozempic. And, um, this is going to be a, I don't mean to derail your burnout conversation. No, 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 no. This is, imagine this is really important I, because people yeah. have those questions. And sometimes, I mean, here, I don't know how common it is that they're yet prescribing metformin right, with other new, insulins, probably. but yeah. eventually they'll learn about it. They'll do it. It'll happen. And then the doctor prescribed it, but sometimes people aren't really sure why. You know, right. the doctors don't always have time to explain everything with all the questions. And, and, yeah. and here, not every doctor has a diabetes educator or a whole team of people. Sometimes it's just the doctor and, yeah. you know, their time's uh, limited. I've so in an article on why I'm taking metformin as a person with type one. So if you search that metformin type one, Ginger Vieira, you'll find it and you could print it out and take it to your doctor and say, I would like to try taking metformin. You're going to have to start it yourself. The conversation, my doctor did not offer it to me. I had to argue it and ask for it. And, um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Everything that I didn't, it wasn't me asking about medication, but once I started reading and learning more then I knew what questions to ask mm-hmm. and that kind of elevated yeah. the discussion a bit, then at least we could get past the basics. And I said, yeah. what about this? What about that? Should we be doing this? Mm-hmm. Should we be right? doing and that? There's another example of burnout, right? It's like, we have to fight to keep our blood sugars managed when we're not even given all the tools, right? There's now six hormones we don't produce properly, but we're only given one. 
Okay. So there's a battle. Then we have to fight, you know, and I live in the US, you have to fight to get coverage for all the medications you need to stay alive. You have to fight your doctor to support you and give you the information you need or not dismiss you entirely when you say you want to go kayaking, let alone compete in powerlifting. Um, and so it's exhausting. It, if you're not burnt out, then I'm worried about you, to be honest. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. And now a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Diapoint Coaching and Training. We offer different coaching packages to meet your different needs, whether it's a quick start health coaching package or maybe a three-month coaching transformation that you're in need of, we can support you. We also offer some personalized health evaluations, diabetes doula consultations, and more. Please visit the diapointshop.com and visit our coaching and wellness page to learn more. If you're still not sure, sign up for a free discovery call and we can talk more about what you're looking for, what your needs are, and about how coaching might support you. And it's free. Now back to the show. One thing I want to, so I have a few like post-its in my book here because I I loved it. And one section that there, every every part was good. But one thing that I really liked was your top 10 effective tips for improving your eating habits. Yeah. If you remember that, but, you know, as someone who is very healthy, takes nutrition seriously, you've been, you're an athlete, so, you know, you have to eat, but I really like this section because I think outside of medication and blood sugar numbers, and people are so confused about what to eat, how to eat. And while everyone's different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really into plant-based whole foods, but people are like, do I need to be vegetarian or vegan? And I'm like, no, but right. I love the way that you put this, that you love food. You say, I love food. I don't feel stressed out by food ever anymore. And you feel empowered on a daily basis through the way that you feed your body. Could you just share a little more about that? Because I think that's important for so many people to hear. Caretakers are so worried. Sometimes they get really rigid with the food their kids are eating. Adults are really worried about everything. And they also get rigid on their diets and the way that they're feeding themselves as well. So I think you have a lot of insight into that topic. I'm very passionate about this topic um, because... So when I was diagnosed, you know, they were pushing sugar-free jello and sugar-free angel food cake as what you could eat for dessert and sugar-free, great. Diet Coke, great. And then when I was in the powerlifting world, I was surrounded by a lot of bodybuilders who all eat very low carb, very rigid diets. And I practiced low carb or carb um carb cycling where you'd eat more carbs on the days that you did deadlifts and squats because your body is going to use up and, and you know use that. Um and I, I did those more restrictive, extreme approaches for a number of years. And I found as I got away from it, that it was like, you know, I shouldn't feel bad about eating a strawberry. I shouldn't have to feel bad about wanting to eat an apple or even chocolate or homemade brownies, right? And eventually I, I really started to see all these different diets as these unnecessary extremes 
where at the end of the day, if we just focus on trying to eat mostly real food, and I use the word mostly because I don't care if my salad has ranch dressing on it, it doesn't negate the salad, right? It's not like my whole day's worth of food is ranch dressing. It's okay. (laughs) If there's going to be some not perfect items on your whole food, if it makes it yummy and enjoyable. And, you know, it's okay to have dessert. Where it becomes a problem is if it's all out of balance and you're having dessert three, four times a day. So I know what has worked really well for me is to get rid of all the rules. There are no rules in my life around food. And I have celiac. So technically, one of my rules should be you can't eat gluten. But nobody likes being told that something is 100% off limits. That doesn't inspire you usually to want to adhere to that rule, right? And the same could go for carbs. Um, People who keep trying to follow a low-carb diet and they feel like a failure because they just can't do it. It's okay. And so my only rule is to choose mostly real food. And for when it comes to gluten, I'm in charge of what I choose to eat. So if I want to choose gluten, nobody's going to stop me. But I'm choosing to mostly real food that I know helps me feel good. Gluten is usually not real food by the time it's set up in something. It's usually packaged and processed to hell. And so I actively don't choose it, even though I could choose it every single day if I want, right? In my mind, it's not off limits. It's just something that if I choose it, I'm not going to feel great. Same as if I choose to eat gluten-free cookies for breakfast, that's not setting me up for feeling great for the day, right? Um, so getting rid of all the rules and really starting over. And you might, if you have been engaged in a lot of yo-yo restrictive dieting for years, that's going to freak you out. And you might binge for a week straight because there's no rules. Oh my God, I can go eat all the things that have been haunting me because I'm constantly trying to hide from them. But if they're no longer these scary evil foods that you've, you know, deemed off limits, they're not such a big deal. I my I have so much chocolate in my house and I don't think about it all day because I give myself permission to enjoy dessert once a day, every day. And I don't limit the, I don't count the calories of my dessert. I just enjoy it and eat a reasonable amount. And then I move on with my life. Amazing. We should be neighbors. I got a lot of chocolate at home too. Perfect. Or maybe that would be dangerous. Right over. And, and, and the good stuff. My son also is like, yeah, there's a chocolate place here and they they know him for a very long time by name. I go in and there's like to pick up our supply of chocolate that we keep. He's like, how's Aaron? I'm like, he's fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, the that's that's fantastic. And that's great advice. I think for anybody, diabetes or not, so many people are always trying to go on restrictive diets. Um, and not eat. And even myself, I grew up in the eighties and nineties. And despite eating healthy, most of the time we were always, there were so many fad diets and there still are, but the minute that you make that conscious decision to stop and you say, I'm just going to eat good food. I'm going to feed myself. Well, it gets a lot easier somehow. I think that any diet where they're telling you that an entire macronutrient macronutrients are fat, protein, and carbs 
where they're telling you that this food is bad and it's, I mean, that is when all your red flags should go up and just stop, stop trying to do that diet. Um, I am a big fan of intermittent fasting because intermittent fasting doesn't tell me what I can and cannot eat. It just puts some structure around when you eat in a way that I find serves me really well as a person with type one. Um, and there's been, you know, lots of times in my life where I'm like, yeah, I'm going to give fasting a break. And I'm just listening to my body and saying, you know, I, I need to eat breakfast. I just feel like my body wants breakfast. And then I start practicing intermittent fasting again when it feels right and it feels good, you know? Um, so it's, you don't have to do this hard, rigid thing in order to succeed. I've never been leaner in my life and I have no restrictions around, you know? Amazing. Amazing. That's very inspiring. I like that. Another thing that I marked in your book was, huh? Ginger's top five motivating statements. Oh, (laughs) those were, I really liked. You'll have to remind me of those. Okay. Number one is I can, I can, I can, I can. Yes. Number two, this is not supposed to be easy. One of your trainers would always say this to you. Yes. He'd say, you ain't here very Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think I had a trainer that said something similar. So that's supposed to be easy. And I'm like, I can always do just a little bit more. And I like this. I think of my grandfather when I remind myself of this. I know I wouldn't want him to see me give up on anything. Yeah. You can picture somebody, somebody in your life who you really know that they see your full potential and that they'd be like, you can do better than that. Like picture that person and let them, let them motivate you. Number four, the eye of the tiger. (laughs) (laughs) Rocky. Are you a Rocky fan? I am a very big Rocky fan. I love that story. It's just an example of persistence and, you know, never give up. And then number five is I can accomplish anything I set my mind to. Yes. And then you cite your brothers, Dave and Pete. Yes. And um, I mean, all of the above is about talking yourself up. And a lot of people get really stuck in a habit of talking themselves down, right? And we underestimate how much that affects not just how we manage type 1 diabetes, but our general outlook on life, whether it's genetics or siblings and a great grandfather and my the back of my brain is always reminding me it's okay you can handle this Um, as I became a parent I started experiencing more anxiety for the first time in my life and just because there's you know so much going on all the time and especially when that second baby stopped sleeping all day and like woke up and started running And I had to learn how to like feel the anxiety and like remind myself, take a deep breath. It's okay. You can handle this. Whatever comes next, you can handle it. Because if you look back, it's like, you handle all that. It's okay. And you have to talk yourself through anything. And with type one, when you see that blood sugar that you really were not hoping to see, you know, you have to look at how do you talk to yourself in that moment when your blood sugar is really high are you beating yourself up for it or are you saying okay whatever i just did wasn't you know 
quite right. Wasn't the right fit for what my body needed. Make a note. I'll try something different next time and then move on. Because if you beat yourself up for it and say, I suck at this, there's nowhere to go after that. I love that. How many children do you have? Two? Two Two. daughters. Yeah. Oh, nice. And how you'd mentioned earlier about pregnancy and type one, and that's really challenging to, you know, manage and keep a tight range in blood sugars. And how did you find that? Does that contribute more to burnout or more challenges or were the pregnancies different too? I think also fascinating to understand if you saw blood sugars behaving differently from pregnancy to pregnancy. I mean, there's no way that your second pregnancy can be quite like your first because your first, all you have to do is take care of you, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pregnancy. The second pregnancy is a whole different ballgame because now I've got this two-year-old to keep alive while I have to obsess about my blood sugars for the baby in my body, right? Mm. And um, so I'd say my A1Cs were, you know, pretty much the same. Um, but I was a lot calmer during that second pregnancy about my blood sugars. I already knew, Hey, I can do this. Look, the baby, baby was fine. She doesn't have three heads. It's okay. Take a deep breath. Um, you know, because they try to scare the heck out of you women with pregnant with T1D and pregnancy. Um, and you know, and even on that same note, I had, uh, some very weird issues at the end of my pregnancy and, I nearly bled to death a week after she was born. Completely unrelated unrelated to my type one at all, but just, you don't know what your body, when it's under, it's a stress your body has never been under before. And you don't know how it's going to respond. And you have to kind of, it's a humbling moment to be like, you know, even though I've done my best to be as healthy as possible, my body is still not, uh, you know, like the most normal body, right? Like there's some stuff going on in my body inevitably as a person with an autoimmune disease, that's not quite right. And so pregnancy could can really highlight that of just the things that you still don't know about your body that it's going to struggle with. Um, And nobody knows why I nearly bled to death. We just know I did. Wow. That was after the first one or the second one? After the second one. I woke up from a nap and I was just, blood was pouring from my body. And we discovered that my uterus did not know how to contract. Oh my goodness. Incapable of having a contraction, truly. Um, So just be kind to yourself because you just don't, you know, you, you can't, just because you've done everything right, quote unquote, doesn't mean that your pregnancy is going to go swift and smooth. You just don't know, you know, and even someone with zero health conditions can have a complicated pregnancy. Mm. So also, in addition to your book, you're very involved with, um, wait, before I get to that question, I want to ask you another question. You have some children's books as well. Yes. Because people are always curious about great books for children around diabetes. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So Mike Lawson and I, Mike has type one as well. Um, We had done a bunch of projects together in our youthful days, and he is an incredible artist and I love telling stories. So we teamed up to write, we've written two so far, 
Um, one is called When I Go Low, and it helps kids learn what the symptoms of type 1 feel like because many young people with type 1, it takes a long time before they can really notice that their body is feeling the symptoms of hypoglycemia. And for really little kids, you know, their parents don't know what it feels like either. So I wanted to put some story, some fun storyline. It's not scary. It's not threatening. It's a storyline about um, a cat with type 1 diabetes. We tried to leave. We left humans out of it. A cat. It's all different animals. And um, he goes through the neighborhood and he first he's meeting other kids who have type 1. So he's realizing he's not the only one. And then they're talking about how they feel when they go low. So we're highlighting all the major symptoms of hypoglycemia and putting words to it and talking about it in some kid language and just helping kids think about it in a way that is fun and kind of silly. Um, there's a song in it. When I go low, I feel so, so, so wibbly wobbly, flibbly flobbly. When I go low, that's how I know it's time to eat my special treat. I'll spare you the rest as I am. No, it's great. It's great. So that's the first one. And then the second one is called Ain't Gonna Hide My T1D. And same kind of series of characters, but new characters. This one stars Sherry the Sheep. And she is really nervous about wearing her CGM to school and having other kids see her CGM. And some kids aren't very nice about it. And she learns how to handle them and how to stand up for herself and um, she says, ain't going to hide my T1D, ain't going to hide my T1D. It's part of me, as you can see, and it ain't going to stop what I can be. So oh, she's, I love that. Yeah, it's, that one for me is really about, um, I really believe, no matter what age you are, that if you carry your type one as though it's embarrassing, other people will see it as something to be embarrassed by. If you carry your type one as something you're very proud of yourself for having dealt with all day long, day after day, other people will see it as something that's kind of impressive. I once had a um, a distant relative say to me, you shouldn't be telling people in your um, job applications that you have type one or that you have fibromyalgia because they might not hire you. And I said to him, the way I present my diseases makes me look like someone you want to hire, not the opposite. And it really comes down to that. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I'm not hiding. Exactly. Amen. And if they don't hire you because of that, then you don't want to work at that company anyway. Definitely not. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I always say like unapologetically. And that's one thing that, you know, I didn't, think about it too much, but I knew, of course, I never wanted my child to be ashamed of anything. And even once like that kind of first time you have to make that first decision about how you're going to do it. And we were, it was maybe a birthday party outdoors or something and a kid ran up and he's like, what is that? And I was like, Oh, you know, that quick second, like, what do you say? But just explain, you know, this is an insulin pump and helps Aaron's pancreas and you know where your pancreas is and what it does and just kind of made it educational. And then he was like, okay. And then right. that was it. Yeah. And so understand something. It's not scary. Right. They, they say even about um, discrimination, racial discrimination, people are, people hate the things that they're afraid of because they don't understand them. That right? is so true. And That's it, so true. Same could be applied to chronic illnesses. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Demystifying all of these things that whatever the stories that 
people yeah. tell themselves or whatever they've heard. Yeah, they've never heard anything and therefore they're just too darn ignorant to even make a thoughtful decision. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's so true. I love these books. And I think I'm going to add some of those to my library, even though my son's older. I think they're still amazing. They'd be fun to read to to type one kids as well. So really great and creative. And I wanted to also ask you, so you are involved with the T1D Exchange. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I am the Associate Director of Communications at T1D Exchange. Uh, My position there is relatively new, but I've been freelancing for them for a long time. T1D Exchange basically conducts research through a variety of different ways that all strive to help improve care, healthcare, and quality of life for people with type 1. Um, One of those ways is online research that anyone, you have to live in the U.S., uh, just because it's research, it has to be approved by Mm. countries, Okay, et cetera. That's good good to know, because that was one of my questions when I was looking at it. I was like, hmm, I wonder if this is just U.S., because T1D research and things need to improve everywhere, but but at least it's starting somewhere. I mean... If we had bajillions of dollars, we'd do it in every country. Believe me, (laughs) research is not free. (laughs) So, um, And so people can join. It's free to join the registry. And you fill out this big questionnaire about your life with type 1 diabetes. And then as time goes on and different, we work with different um, clinics or universities um, or even... um, industry partners, like uh, people who make different medications for people with type one, you can see if you're eligible for different studies. And they're literally all studies that are done virtually. So online from home, nobody's going into a clinic and, you know, getting hooked up to an IV. I think we've done a couple of in-person studies, but that's obviously more complex. Um, But then we do have one feature, um, one part of our, what we do that is open to anyone across the globe, which is our online community. And every day we ask a question to the online community and those questions help really gather insights about what people are struggling with or what they need or what they have that really helps, um, or just how people with type one feel about X, Y, Z. I mean, we literally ask a question 365 days a year. And so that's joining the online community and it doesn't matter where you live um, to participate that in that. And, and those then, questions yeah. come through email? They do. Um, yes. And then you can also just go to the website and answer them on the website too. But you'll get emailed each day, one email okay. a day, and you can click you it, click on it and, go. and choose your answer. Um, there's a lot of discussion on there. Just It's a really vast, big community, thousands of people that talk back and forth in comments and um, and we highlight different responses in articles and uh, because we just get a lot of insightful ideas and conversation going through these questions. Amazing. And then another huge thing we do is the Quality Improvement Collaborative, which is um, clinics across the U.S. that all work with us to conduct different types of like for an example. I mean, there's dozens of examples, but one example is how to help um, adults with A1Cs over 9%. So this clinic developed a program that's specifically for adults with A1Cs over 9%. And it's this in-depth program. And did it help them bring their A1C down over the course of six months? 
And, and it did. And so because it was successful, they can then disseminate that to the other participating clinics. And we've mm-hmm. got 54 so far participating in the QIC. Um, and so they share that whole approach. And then those clinics can adopt that program. Um, we did another one on mental health screening, improving the mental health screening program for teenagers with type one to help prevent more teens from falling through the cracks, basically, if they do need more support with their mental health. And it's improving on an old system that isn't necessarily working well, proved to be effective. They can take that and share it with all the other participating clinics and, you know, and thus help 80,000 people with type one instead of just the, the number that's in their clinic. I love that. And I love that it's, you know, one clinic's experimenting with it, but then they're helping others because sometimes, I mean, everyone, of course, wants to improve outcomes for people with type one diabetes. You know, we'd love a cure. We don't have that, but sometimes I guess in the clinical world, people or clinics, not people, but clinics and businesses can become very competitive and then that doesn't help the greater good. So yeah. that's a really beautiful Or, thing. I mean, the exercise example of if you have this clinic that's telling people they can't go kayaking anymore, but you have this other clinic, the next state over that knows exactly how to support people who want to go kayaking or do marathons. These two clinics ought to be talking to each other, you know? Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. That too. Or, or the, the doctors, at least I know I'm still always amazed. I've almost every adult with type one I've met has been told at diagnosis that they can't, you know, do these things or their parents were told they should kind of. When I first asked my doctor about, I had been training in powerlifting for a little while and somebody, I would, I had been training in lifting and I'd gotten really strong very quickly. And someone said to me, you should compete in powerlifting. So then I shifted gears and I said to my new adult endocrinologist, I'm going to compete in powerlifting in May. And he laughed at me. And then he didn't even talk about it with me. He would not discuss it. He just laughed at me and then accused me of lying about my blood sugars because I was waking up high a lot. I needed help. I was trying to ask him for help. My, I was just really not taking enough Lantus insulin. Now that I look back on it, you know, um, I didn't, I wasn't getting enough insulin. And so my A1C was up. Right. And, but yeah, that's the kind of support I got. And so instead, I just never went back. And then I dove headfirst into trying to figure it out on my own and yada, yada, yada. <laughs> the rest is as we've discussed. Yeah, that's that's why people stop seeking medical advice. Yeah, And it's sad because there are some good doctors out there. Yes. And when you find them, hold on to them. But there's some great ones indeed. Yeah. Yes. But if, if you have one that's, you know, that's saying you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, then drop them, go yeah. to the, you can, you can, you can. Amazing. Well, I don't want to take up more of your time, but I think we could continue to talk for another hour because I have a lot of other questions, but I hope that when your new book comes out, that you would come back to educate us about exercising and diabetes and all the things because we're waiting for that. Do you have a a date when that will be available? I've learned from the past that I shouldn't rush something just because I really want to get it out. So I've written the whole book and I just need to finish editing and then give it to my graphics guy and 
So I'm hoping that by definitely by the end of March, but sometime in March. Okay. We'll look for that. And then we'll share it as soon as we start seeing you talk about it. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me. And again, I really appreciate your time and sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us. Thank you so much. Give give your son a high five for me and tell him he's doing awesome. No matter what. I will. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Was that just not the most inspiring conversation? I really enjoyed that. And I hope you did too. Like I said, I had a feeling that it was going to be wonderful and inspiring, and I didn't know much about Ginger. I think we were able to talk for a whole couple of minutes at the ISPAD meeting in Abu Dhabi, and that was such a a fortunate run-in because then that led me just to go learn more about her after she had mentioned, you know, um, she was writing uh, for, I think, one of the journals and, and some of the other things she was working on. So I was really curious to learn more about her. And when I learned that she was focusing on burnout and other topics, I just thought that she would be a really great guest for the podcast. But even more than that, it's not just about her being a guest of the podcast, she just seems like a really wonderful person and so wise and has so much deep experience and knowledge in diabetes. So I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. We'll have the links for her books in the show notes. So I highly recommend dealing with diabetes burnout. I've not read the other ones yet. And we'll definitely be sharing in our social media when we see her new book come out. And hopefully we'll have her back on the show soon. So thank you again, Ginger. And thank you everyone for listening and joining us for this episode. Have a wonderful day. 